Who is Friedrich Nietzsche? And what difference does it make to you? It's not essential that people know who Nietzsche is, but if you do know, it helps you to get a picture of the history of ethics, more or less from the beginning to the present day, because Nietzsche clarifies that entire picture in an interesting way. The second reason to know something about Nietzsche is that, to quote a fairly recent book, Nietzsche is now the most often cited philosopher in the Western tradition. Amazing. What is the attraction? That's well worth thinking about. And the third thing is something uh, especially interesting for us. Nietzsche is one of the few philosophers in the history of ethics for whom health was a fundamental concept. I don't mean that Nietzsche cared about health. Everybody does. I mean that health was practically the cornerstone of Nietzsche's understanding of right and wrong. And this makes him both unique and interesting. Usually when we look at philosophers in these conferences, we're coming to ethics from a practical standpoint. You as physicians are faced today in your practice with ethical challenges that, if they are not resolved, in some way threaten your practice. I don't need to prove that to you, but here's an example. I quote from a guest editorial published last summer in Canada's leading medical journal, as the journal builds itself, the Journal of the Canadian Medical Association. The editorial is titled, Abortion, Ensuring Access. And the lawyers who authored it write, I quote, Healthcare professionals who fail to provide appropriate referrals for abortions they will not perform themselves are committing malpractice and risk lawsuits and disciplinary proceedings. This is confrontation over an issue of ethics. Canadian physicians have just been warned by the country's most powerful medical institution that they will be sued for malpractice for doing what many physicians believe is right. How can it be wrong to do what is right? And there are many more ethical challenges where that came from. I heard a couple of them over dinner. This is the background, I'm guessing, of your interest in hearing about the history of ethical thought. Does the history of ethics give us any weapons in the fight to practice our professions? As physicians or teachers, teachers have their own ethical challenges, uh, and do what we think is right. Can't we do what is right and practice our professions and not be interfered with? And does history offer us any help here? So in these Augustan College conferences, we come to philosophy with this kind of interest. And the philosophers who populate our tradition will say, in response, that there is an answer to your question. That answer usually has to do with some specific concept. Kant says it has to do with universalizability. So this is the solution to your ethical dilemma. If you can defend what you think is right with a rule that you could want everyone to follow in every case, then it is right, and your action is universally defensible, he will be able to defend the action based on it to the satisfaction of every sensible person, Kant says. But utilitarians, following John Stuart Mill, disagree. Their key principle is the greatest happiness. Actions are right, says Mill, in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, and by happiness is intended pleasure and the absence of pain. Now, already you have trouble. What if your colleague is a Kantian? Or your hospital ethicist is a utilitarian? And what are you? Maybe you're not even sure. What are your arguments? 
how are you going to argue any one of these challengers out of your way? Well, you may be surprised to hear this, but Nietzsche is not a bad guide in this very situation. You may not want to mention his name, which is fine. But what help does Nietzsche give you? Nietzsche rejects the ethics of these philosophers. He scoffs at universalizability and the greatest happiness and all the rest. We'll consider why in a moment. But he is not a nihilist. There are many misperceptions of Nietzsche, and that's one of them. That Nietzsche is against everything. In this connection, I recommend uh, a book to you by Robert Solomon and Kathleen Higgins called What Nietzsche Really Said, from which I will occasionally quote this evening if you want to know. It's a, quite a readable book. Now, I'm not an expert on Nietzsche or on anything, as a matter of fact. But Nietzsche is one of the philosophers I've thought a lot about. I've read half of his complete works and I've really tried to understand him, which is something I cannot say about many philosophers. So when I cite some author writing about Nietzsche, I'm not just pulling a book off the shelf and passing on hearsay. I'm telling you what seems to me at least to be right. Solomon and Higgins list Nietzsche was a nihilist as rumor number nine, misperceptions, to which they reply, Nietzsche's philosophy is nothing if not affirmative. The key principle that Nietzsche turns to is life, but not just life, health. Ongoing life, the idea of some self-perpetuating life principle, was a key idea in the minds of many thinkers of the 18th and 19th centuries. You see it in Darwin, for example. Evolution is, of course, a mindless process, but what is it that evolution serves to accomplish? Evolutionists talk about success. Success at what? Evolution is the result of natural selection, which is a mechanism. A mechanism for what? For the perpetuation of the fittest, or updated to today, those with good genes. Who are the fittest? They are those who are best equipped to survive, to live, to pass on their adaptations. Nietzsche mocked this. That is, he laughed especially at the people who applied this idea of perpetuation, survival, to human beings. What kind of purpose is that going on? Perpetuation. What's the point of it? How is that supposed to inspire us? If that is what life is all about, then life per se is meaningless, Nietzsche said. Darwinians define health as what is conducive to life in this sense of perpetuation. A healthy organism is one that is fit to pass on its strengths of survival. Health, as defined by the Darwinian, is therefore as meaningless as perpetuation, which health serves. But Nietzsche said that health is not meaningless. It's the key thing. And in that respect, Nietzsche is unique in the history of ethics, which makes him very interesting for us. In that respect, the philosophers to whom Nietzsche comes closest, though he also rejects them, are the philosophers whose key ethical principle is excellence or virtue. Aristotle and followers, such as Thomas Aquinas. Health is very much like virtue. We'll see how a bit later. At one point, Solomon and Higgins actually write, Nietzsche might well say, I am not a destroyer of the virtues, I am a liberator of them. And here are three more such comments from these authors. Virtue ethics, although a recent coinage, and they're talking about the aftermath 
of Alastair MacIntyre's After Virtue. This is one of the great works in the history of ethics and written by a Christian philosopher. Virtue ethics describes an approach to ethics that has been well articulated in Western thought since Aristotle and is evident in Nietzsche's ethical thought as well, they say. This is an approach in which personal character, individual excellence is the primary focus. Another quotation about this same issue. Nietzsche, to put the matter simply, is more like Aristotle than like Kant because of something positive in the action of the behavior itself. What makes it right is not a logical argument, as it was for Kant. And third, these two authors say, achieving excellence is precisely what makes one happy, according to both Nietzsche and Aristotle. Now, this is an intriguing and I think accurate view of Nietzsche. Nietzsche, Aristotle, and Aquinas all have an understanding of health, and it will be interesting for us to look at that connection between health and ethics and how it helps with the ethical challenges of our day. Nietzsche was born in 1844 in Prussia. The Encyclopedia Britannica says his home was a stronghold of Lutheran piety. His paternal grandfather was a Protestant apologist and church superintendent. His maternal grandfather was a country parson, and his father, who died before Nietzsche was five, was a pastor. He was an excellent student, received an outstanding classical education, and began at age 20 to study theology and classical philology, not philosophy. When Nietzsche was about 24, his classics professor recommended him for a job as a professor of classical literature in Basel, Switzerland. This is the only one looking up. He said that in 40 years of teaching, he'd never seen anyone with Nietzsche's talents. One year later, the Franco-Prussian War broke out. Despite his new professorship, Nietzsche volunteered as a medical orderly and within a month contracted dysentery and diphtheria, which permanently ruined his health. He returned to teaching in Basel, but after five years begged for sick leave, and after a few more years of increasing ill health, he resigned his professorship. Here are a few of the titles of the books that uh, Nietzsche began to write then. Daybreak, Thoughts on the Prejudices of Morality. Beyond Good and Evil, Prelude to a Philosophy of the Future. On the Genealogy of Morals, a Polemic. That is, on the real motives that underlie traditional Western morality. What are the real motives for this right and wrong business? Etcher Homo, How One Becomes What One Is. And the Twilight of the Idols, or How to Philosophize with a Hammer, which was written in 1889. That year he collapsed in the streets of Turin, Italy, a few years ago where the Winter Olympics were held. He saw a driver beating a horse. He threw his arms around the horse in protection and lost consciousness. That was the end of his writing career. He was 44, and after a series of strokes, he died in 1900, in the first summer of the new century, as one of the authors put it. In After Virtue, the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre called Nietzsche the Kamehameha II of the European tradition. MacIntyre says that the way we should understand who Nietzsche is, what his contribution to the history of ethics is, is to see him this way. He says this gives us a deep insight into the ethical landscape of modern times. So what's the story? 
We shift to Hawaii. And this is all McIntyre. Okay? Kamehameha II was king of Hawaii from 1819 to 1824. When he took the throne in 1819, he abolished Hawaii's system of taboos, which in Hawaii was called kapu. How can you abolish taboos? Well, he did it by doing publicly something for which the penalty was death. He sat down at a royal luau to eat with the women. The idea that something is taboo was the basis of traditional Hawaiian law, the most serious of which were the laws of the gods, or kapu akua. Infractions of the kapu akua were always capital crimes. For instance, the kapu system imposed the death penalty on anyone who stepped on the shadow of a high chief. This seems crazy to us, of course. But why was there such a law? The kapu system as a whole was intended to preserve pono, the proper balance among the gods, the land, and the people. A disruption of pono might be reflected in natural disasters such as famine or tsunami or social disasters such as wars. Now this is instantly intelligible. This is just simple causality. If you believe that there is this causal connection, then uh, the legal system based on Kapu makes perfect sense. Given what people at one time believed about the high chief and the nature of his shadow in relation to him, and the way in which one's relation to the chief mirrors one's relation to the cosmos, the order of things, you can actually see why such a law might emerge. It's no harsher than the laws in Exodus. If you do work on the Sabbath, says Exodus 35.2, capital crime. We do not agree with that, but we can understand the gravity of a repudiation of God's order. King Kamehameha II abolished all of this on a single day in 1819. A foreigner wrote in his diary, This day all the women ate pork and they burnt all the churches on the island. He's referring to the traditional temples. Across the entire island chain, the priests, the priests renounced their offices. The next year, the king admitted the first company of missionaries arrived from New England, but he himself resisted conversion to Christianity, allegedly because he refused to give up, as he was required to do, four of his five wives and, and rum introduced to the Hawaiians, only in 1791. In 1823, he made an official trip to England where, with his favorite wife, he contracted measles and died. The term taboo is Polynesian in origin and entered English via Captain James Cook, who encountered it on his visit to Tonga in 1771. A taboo, say the authors of the Encyclopedia Britannica, is the prohibition of an action or the use of an object based on ritualistic distinctions that classify these as being either sacred or clean on the one hand, or unclean, dangerous, and accursed on the other. Taboos, we're told, were most highly developed in the Polynesian societies of the South Pacific, but they have been present in virtually all cultures, the encyclopedia said. So physical contact with menstruating women was taboo, the same prohibition you find in the Jewish tradition, which prohibits all physical contact, including the passing of items from wife to husband. There were likewise many Polynesian food taboos, prohibitions on fishing or fruit picking in certain seasons, dietary restrictions for pregnant women, and so on. There's no doubt that some of these taboos were prohibitions related to health. Not that they were just health measures, 
But, again, taboos have a distinctly causal character. It's understood that the breach of a taboo will automatically be followed by some kind of trouble to the offender, such as sickness or lack of success in fishing, which is, of course, a threat to life, or the death of a relative. In each case, some consequence that is against life. Other taboos, equally threats to life, seem to have no medical basis. You could not touch the head or, without permission, handle the clothes of a chief. But Cook's sailors could not figure the taboos out. They made no sense. What is more, they could never get a decent answer from the natives as to why something was taboo. And neither could the anthropologists who came after them. McIntyre says that, quote, What this suggests is that the native informants themselves did not really understand the word they were using. And this suggestion is reinforced by the ease with which Kamehameha II abolished the taboos in Hawaii 50 years after Cook and the lack of social consequence when he did. Now there's more to the story than McIntyre gives us in After Virtue. Kamehameha's cousin, who had co-responsibility for relations to the gods, challenged Kamehameha. McIntyre doesn't mention this. Met him on the battlefield and promptly defeated him. Now think about that battle. Fought on this lava field in which hundreds died. The army that fought in support of the gods and their worship did not receive the support of the gods. They were defeated by those who dismissed the gods. Now what did people make of that? What kind of gods are those? This was a culture that in the past had abandoned gods who had failed them. I would think that what happened on this battlefield was probably the death blow to the Kapu system which McIntyre suggests was already a weak component of Hawaiian culture because the Hawaiians no longer really understood it. Now, I think a lot of people would be offended by that suggestion. All those who adopt an automatic posture of respect for other cultures are, of course, aghast at that suggestion by McIntyre. Let me add a layer to this story, which is why McIntyre is telling it. We are, to our tradition, as the Hawaiians of Kamehameha's time are to their tradition. We, in 2007, are to our moral tradition as the Hawaiians of 1819 are to their kapu tradition. We have forgotten the meaning of good and evil. The Hawaiian natives could not tell anthropologists why something was taboo. We cannot tell anyone, including the people who challenge us over ethical issues, why something is good and evil. We need, says McIntyre, to relearn our moral history. And that's pretty much what the philosophy course here at Augustine College is devoted to. So keep this in the back of your mind, how we fit into McIntyre's story. The decay of a tradition in its forgetfulness calls forth a Kamehameha and a Nietzsche who abolish the meaningless distinctions. When McIntyre says the native people did not really understand the word they were using, many people will object. Of course they understood the meaning of taboo, people will say, but that reflex is never a reflex of understanding. That reflex that we have to defend the intelligibility of their own concepts to them. Or the people who would object would be able to explain how they know that these natives understood their own tradition. 
It is, in fact, a very plausible suggestion to say that in the Hawaii of 1819, kapu was no longer truly understood by the people who used the term, plausible not just on the basis of the ease of its abolition, but because those who have studied taboos are agreed that taboo rules very often have a history which falls into two stages. And McIntyre is transferring this account to our own tradition. Taboo cultures often have two phases, the second of which involves a loss of memory concerning the reasons for the taboos. In this stage of decay, the people still honor the taboos, but they no longer know the rationale for the specific taboos they honor. When you ask them, why can't you step on the chief's shadow? What is it about the shadow? Nobody can tell you. There is no rationale. The only answer you get is chief's shadow, taboo. Part of the story is missing. In this phase of taboo-based law, there is no deeper meaning, yet the laws hold, people obey. Also in this stage, taboo operates differently. In the absence of a tradition or a rationale for calling some new thing taboo, how do you establish that the new thing is taboo? There's no tradition for calling it taboo. The thing is new. The only resource you have now is the spiritual authority of some expert in taboo. So chiefs and temple priests just decide. Now, if you think that is right and good, the priests are the spiritual leaders. Transport that situation to Palestine, 30 AD, where nobody from the sticks of Galilee is telling the priests that they don't know their own law. There's a deeper meaning, a spirit in their law that they've lost sight of. The outcome of this situation is always the same as it is power that now rules. The dissenter is eliminated to protect the power. So in this stage of decay, the taboo system is now a vehicle for power, arbitrary authoritarianism. Now let's return to Nietzsche, the Kamehameha II of the European tradition. Whatever Kamehameha's objective may have been, he succeeded in abolishing the notion of kapu on the basis of its current meaninglessness, the reigning lack of commitment to it among the Hawaiians, which Kamehameha tested by sitting down to eat with his wives. Apparently what should have happened on that occasion uh, was his immediate killing by the priests to quickly restore Pono. It didn't happen. The people still talk about Kapu left and right, we imagine him saying, but I can show that they no longer believe in the gods and their order. And he did so, so let's get rid of the nonsense and join the modern age. Nietzsche took almost exactly the same position in relation to the notions of good and evil. Beyond good and evil is very much like beyond Kapu. Nietzsche philosophically abolished the notion of good on the basis of the same essential meaninglessness to people of his time, the same essential arbitrariness in the judgment of good and bad, which he perceived as follows. The people still talk about good left and right, he observes. Unlike Kamehameha, however, Nietzsche did not then conduct a test that showed that they no longer believed in good and evil. Kamehameha was a politician who had a public stage on which to do that. Nietzsche was a philosopher who had only his writings, writings that in fact almost nobody read in his lifetime. He did what a philosopher could do, which was to test the cogency of the ethical views at the forefront in 19th century Europe, the views of David Hume, Immanuel Kant, 
and John Stuart Mill, the advocate of utilitarianism. Hume, Kant, and Mill are still the three major figures in the ethical tradition. If you go off to university and study ethics, you're essentially going to be getting new versions of either Hume, Kant, or Mill, plus pragmatism. So Nietzsche tested the cogency of the ethical views of these three figures, and when he did so, he saw that these views operated without any rational basis. And McIntyre says that the parallel here is quite notable. So in Hawaii, people called something kapu, but the only argument for forbidding it is that they had always done so well. Can't people be wrong? Or the authority of some priest. And we're agreed, I think, that even a high priest can be wrong. In Europe, Nietzsche says, people call something evil, and being an advanced people, they know that it is no argument to say that we've always called this evil, or that the clergy says it is evil. And I think you and I are in agreement with Nietzsche on this point. Neither way is foolproof. The argument that we have always done this was brushed aside by Jesus, whom the high priest then executed. The argument that this is our tradition was brushed aside by Luther, whom the Pope then excommunicated. So much for those two arguments. So we agree with the best minds of Nietzsche's age that there has to be a better justification than that, something more by which we could test whether what we have always done is right, and what the 19th century calls upon is philosophy, a domain in which Nietzsche is right at home. There's one thing that we have to appreciate about the period we're looking at this year, the 19th century. 19th century is the inheritor of the Enlightenment. In the 18th century, the views of Kant and Hume were innovations that were known only to intellectuals. A hundred years later, in Nietzsche's time, they informed the thinking of every educated person. In a way, we're in the 18th century for the first time. This is really the Enlightenment full-blown. The average educated person in the 18th century does not know what Hume or Kant said. His counterpoint in the 19th century is a Kantian or a Humean, or a person trying to go one better than Kant or Hume, a utilitarian. If you look at the dominant ethical philosophies of the age, Kantianism, Humeanism, and utilitarianism, you have in each an attempt to produce a way to test whether what someone says is evil is in fact evil. That is to say, Kant and Mill give you a calculus by which to determine what is really evil and so forth. Now what does Nietzsche say to this? And this is where he fits into the history of ethics in an entirely unique way. Nietzsche says that when you look at Kantianism and so forth closely, you see that these ways of justifying verdicts of right and wrong are all flawed. They simply do not work. Now we don't have time today to look at the reasons why they don't work, which are fascinating, but here are a couple of arguments just very briefly. Utilitarianism. Nietzsche rejects what he sees as the rampantly hedonistic theory of Englishmen like John Stuart Mill, who believe that people are universally motivated by the principle of, by the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, by that principle. Pursuit of pleasure, avoidance of pain. Solomon and Higgins write, throughout his works, Nietzsche insightfully catalogues cases of human behavior that cannot be explained by the hedonistic paradigm, pursuit of pleasure, avoidance of pain. Heroes and martyrs accept the most excruciating pain and an agonizing death not to gain pleasure or avoid worse pain, but to prove something, to make a point, to win a great victory. Humeanism and Kantianism. 
In both, conscience plays a key role. The voice of conscience confirms our judgment that such and such is right, according to Kant and Hume. In the first place, we had a belief that doing such and such a thing is right. This is where we start. We have an idea that this is right to do such and such a thing. But this is just a belief. This is just a subjective sense of rightness. We need to confirm that it's objectively correct. How? Conscience. But conscience, Nietzsche says, is a voice in the head. Another subjective sense of rightness. Why do you trust it? He writes, How far are you justified in regarding such a judgment as true and infallible? This second belief, is there no further conscience for it? Don't we have to test it too? The testing here is a charade. If you're going to start testing intuitions, you have to test every one. Why question the first intuition and then accept the second one? And Nietzsche is right. There has to be a real test, something more than an appeal to conscience. And remember again that this Hawaiian analogy is all from McIntyre. What you really have, Nietzsche says, is a bunch of Kantian or utilitarian chiefs who first mumble something about categorical imperatives or greatest good for the greatest number, and then deliver their verdict, such and such is wrong, or good, or evil, or right. But this verdict is arbitrary, because there's no proper reasoning behind it. It may not be a bad thing to do, what the verdict urges, but nobody has shown us that it's right to do it. Good and evil in these philosophies are just empty, subjective valuations. And with this, McIntyre agrees. The ethical views that the 19th century wanted, given the Enlightenment discrediting of the ancient tradition, were all failures. These ethical outlooks give the appearance to those who are taken in by them that their rulings are supported by sound reasons, but they're not. If you poke at them, their arguments fall apart, says Nietzsche, and Alistair McIntyre and Peter Kreeft are in complete agreement with him, and I'm in complete agreement with them. None of these testing mechanisms works. The weakness of each is apparent to philosopher after philosopher. Nietzsche was not taken in by the purported tests they offered Western culture for use in resolving ethical dilemmas. But in the 19th century, people all over Europe were using these tools, were being taken in by them. So what then did the situation boil down to? To Kantians or utilitarians getting their way getting us to genuflect to their key ideas, categorical imperative, greatest good, by taking us in with what is really just empty mumbo-jumbo. The only difference between the so-called experts in morals and the Hawaiian temple priests is that the temple priests don't deliver any mumbo-jumbo before they say the word taboo, and the Europeans do. That, says Nietzsche, is what their so-called philosophical arguments are, incantatory mumbo-jumbo that lulled people into accepting the judgment that followed and buying into the entirely spurious expertise of these philosophers who are naturally very happy to accept the moral clout that public recognition gives them. But their moral clout is just assertiveness, power. They have no expertise because their arguments were empty. Just as there was no expertise in the chiefs who autocratically pronounced this or that new thing taboo. And here's McIntyre's summation. It was Nietzsche's historic achievement to understand more clearly than any other philosopher 
that what purported to be appeals to objectivity were in fact expressions of subjective will. So what does Nietzsche see as he looks out on European culture? The ethical views honored in Europe are just masks for power, just as in Hawaii before Kamehameha II. By 1800, the Hawaiian taboo system had provided a platform on which the particular people who happened into the role of priests were able to direct others to do this and not do that according to the priest's will, the priest's arbitrary inclination, and were able to punish dissenters with full support of the community. The taboo system seems to represent an order that has nothing to do with the will of individuals but in reality it serves as an objective-seeming screen for the subjective will. In reality, the new taboos are just whatever those empowered by the taboo system want to prohibit, for no reason they themselves could justify. And that is why Nietzsche calls judgments of good and evil values. That's the reason. Kant or Mill have not come up with what is objectively right he says, they have come up with their own judgments, their own inclinations. Nietzsche calls them value judgments, unsupported valuations, in a word, values. Ethical philosophy claims to stand up for an objective order that has nothing to do with the will of individuals, but in reality it does not. All it does is to press upon you the unsupported views of individuals. That's what Nietzsche concludes. But he also generalizes his conclusion. Now this is the second step. And McIntyre doesn't follow him in this step. He generalizes his conclusion. Nietzsche looks at the ethics of his time, sees through it, and says this is the character of all ethics from the beginning of time. He writes, The knowledge of how moral judgments have in general always originated would make you tired of these pathetic words duty, and conscience, the knowledge of how these moral judgments have come about. As you have already grown tired, he adds, of other pathetic words, for instance, sin, salvation, and redemption. He says there has never been a properly justified claim that something is right or wrong, at least among these these moralizers and ethicists. Why does he say that? And why does he say it specifically about the ethical tradition that the Enlightenment discredited? We'll look at that shortly. But the important thing now is where this leaves humankind. So what now if all the world's moralizers have just been getting us to do their will? Morality, writes Nietzsche, has shown herself to be the greatest mistress of seduction ever since men began to discourse and persuade on earth. Now, what is coming next? What do you think follows from that conclusion? What do you think, what would you say logically comes next? And you would think that's what you would say, wouldn't you? Well, it's all just a circus of rhetoric, so go at it. Do what Kant and Mill are doing. Concoct your stories and stand up for whatever you want. Nothing is really good. Nothing is any better than anything else. So do whatever you want. There's no benchmark by which to say it matters. Now, you would think that Nietzsche would say that, and people have told you that who did. And you can cobble together sentences clipped from here and there to make him say that. But when people do that, they always leave out other sentences. Nietzsche does not think that emulating Kant and Mill is all right. 
They claim to have found something, but they have not found it. And there is such a thing as honesty facing up to the truth about what you've done. Nietzsche does not think that all we're left with is a war of assertions, none of which can be condemned. Nietzsche does not think that anything goes. On the contrary, he says that once we see that moral arguments in the service of these abstract principles, the good, justice, conscience, are all inherently flawed arguments, then we can stop acting like Kant and Mill and their followers, and we can start to employ the real process of evaluation. There is a benchmark by which to say what matters. Nietzsche looks at all ethics and asks this. Under what conditions did man invent for himself those judgments, good and evil? And what intrinsic value do they possess in themselves? Have they up to the present hindered or advanced human well-being? Are they a symptom of the distress, impoverishment and degeneration of human life? What is Nietzsche saying here? That it's high time that we undertake what he calls a revaluation of all values, bring all ethics into question, People think that this revaluation of all values means dump everything till now thought good or bad. But they forget that this revaluation of all values involves revaluation. It is not a rhetorical question when Nietzsche asks, what value do morals possess in terms of human well-being? He means that quite seriously. Revaluation does not mean dismissing, but re-evaluating, putting to a new test. What test? On what basis is Nietzsche going to reevaluate all past judgments of good and evil? He's going to do it on the basis of whether they hinder or advance human well-being. Any value is worth trashing if it supports the degeneration of human life. And, you know, Aquinas agrees. That's very significant. This is the point at which those who claim Nietzsche as a postmodernist will protest, but what Nietzsche has just said is that ethics is to be held to the standard and rebuilt to the standard of a picture of fulfilled human life. Aristotle said that. Aquinas said that. And I agree with Aquinas that the Bible says that from Genesis to Revelation. Ethics is to be held to the standard and rebuilt to the standard of a picture of fulfilled human life. The thing about Nietzsche is that everybody wants only one half of him. All of the people who make Nietzsche currently the most cited philosopher in the Western tradition are people who want to look upon morality itself as a problem along with him, period. But they want to ignore what Nietzsche says next, which is always, always a reiteration of the basic shape of ancient ethics in which Nietzsche, as a lover of Greek thought, was steeped, which is this. What is worth standing up for is what helps us become like that picture of fulfilled human life and what is worth condemning. There's no room for tolerance here, Nietzsche says. None at all. What is worth condemning is whatever lulls a human being into degeneration. These people, postmodernists, appropriate half of Nietzsche and forget the other half. And Christians do the same thing, in reverse. They like to have Nietzsche as a whipping boy, and they can get off a very good joke at his expense. But they don't want the rest of the God is dead story. Nietzsche tells this story in a book called Joyful Wisdom. And here's a bit of it. 
Where's God gone? I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers. Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? So the border between heaven and earth just wiped away. What did we do when we loosed this earth from its sun? Whither does it now move? Do we not dash on unceasingly backwards, sideways, in all directions? Do we not stray as through infinite nothingness? God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. The holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knife. Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? So Nietzsche was not kidding when he called God the holiest and the mightiest. He was dead serious. Holiness and mightiness remain for Nietzsche the standard by which to judge. And he did not think that people were worthy to take God's place. Nietzsche surveys the society around him and all that he can see, he says, is a notorious cultural deficiency. Our time is so bad that the poet no longer encounters in the human life that surrounds him a nature he can employ, he says. And perhaps this is the moment to factor in Nietzsche's harsh judgment of Christianity. From what I've just told you, you can tell why he condemns Christianity, why he rejects its judgments of good and evil. Christianity is against Nietzsche's picture of fulfilled human life. Christianity is sick, an unhealthy force, a force against life. Just look at its symbol. What does it do? It lures people into the desert through self-incarceration in cells. It is life-hating and in being so lures people into degeneration, Nietzsche wrote. He said, Christianity has taken the side of everything weak, base, ill-constituted. It has made an ideal out of opposition to the preservative instincts of strong life. And it is this idea of healthy and strong human life that we need to look at next. But first, we need a break.